Weirdo Bookworms Unite! We want to share our love of genre fiction with you. Fans of horror, sci-fi, fantasy, and more can stop by as we chat about what we've been reading. Good evening and welcome, genre junkies. I hope everybody is ready for a little trip down memory lane for some of us. Hi, Scott. Hi, Sandra. That's my lovely co-host, Scott. I am Sandra. And tonight, we're going to talk to you about a little book called A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Leangle. Now, a lot of you may have already read this book, either recently or, like me, a long time ago. (laughs) In a galaxy far, far away. So before we get into that, let me just tell you a synopsis about A Wrinkle in Time. A beloved classic from 1962, A Wrinkle in Time is the first in a quintet from Madeline Leangle. This is the story of Meg, her brother Charles Wallace, and their new friend Calvin, as they travel through time and space to find Meg and Charles' father. Both their mom and dad are scientists, and their father, a physicist, disappeared while working on a secret mission. The children are aided on their journey by the fantastical trio of Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Witch. So as Scott told you, he read this book back when he was a little a little padwan, a little youngling. A long time ago. Um, I never read this book. And it's kind of a secret shame that I never read it. Um, I, I mean, I think we all know what I was doing. I was reading R.L. Stein. I never I didn't have time for this. And Stephen King. Well, yeah, but a little later. But I remember so many kids were reading these books when I was in elementary school, and it was like everybody, every book report had somebody reading these books, and I just never got around to it. And I always meant to, always meant to. And then, of course, you know, now we've got this movie coming out. The movie looks friggin' phenomenal. It's a Disney thing, and it's got Oprah in it. I mean, sign me up. Take my money. The visuals and the previews, it just looks beautiful. Oh, it looks gorgeous. And it seems like um, so many people are really passionate about this series and about bringing this into, um, you know, a feature film. And it seems like one of those things that people are like, oh, it could never be done. And and now with the technology we have, it's like this reality. So I was like, I got to read this book. And I went to our local bookstore and I bought a copy of it because I know like my parents, my sister haven't read this book. Well, these huge readers none of us have ever read this book so i want to pass it around to everybody i know so that they can read it too and i can talk about it with you guys and then we'll all be like on the same page going into the movie you know i do think it's important to read the book before you see this movie it's not a very long book no it's really not and obviously it's um written at like a child reading level so it's um you know it's not like a something that's really hard to digest Now, Scott, did you know that to this day, A Wrinkle in Time, and I assume the rest of the series, is a frequently banned or challenged book? I recently found that out. I'm (laughs) kind of surprised, honestly, reading the book again, why it is. I originally picked up this book in Catholic elementary school. Mm -hmm. It It was in their library. Oh, um, I found kind of a nice, succinct way that somebody worded this. Actually, um, Allie Parr over on Mental Floss wrote this little blurb here in, um, in sort of an article about Wrinkle in Time. So I'm going to share it. 
Oddly enough, A Wrinkle in Time has been accused of being too religious and anti-Christian. Langle's particular brand of liberal Christianity was deeply rooted in universal salvation, a view that some critics have claims uh, denigrates organized Christianity and promotes an occultic worldview. There have also been objectives... Um, objections to the use of Christ's name alongside with figures like Buddha, Shakespeare, and Gandhi. Detractors feel that grouping these names together trivializes Christ's divine nature. So there you have it. A book that is banned for at once being too religious and at once being uh, not religious enough. I know. Scott's mind looks a little blown. Looks like he's having like some pain. I mean... People will find any reason to ban just about anything, so I guess it makes Mm -hmm. sense in a way. But one of the things that's the most beautiful about this book is its light brushing of spirituality and, quite frankly, religion. I think it's why it originally resonated with me as a child. Yeah, I think the spirituality mixed with science in this book is really beautiful and kind of quaint and and cute and honest. And and I thought it was really cool. It's not preachy to me. I don't know if the rest of the books in this series are for some people get more preachy or more whatever. Did you only read this first book, Scott, as a kid? I did. I haven't read any of the other books. Oh, okay, okay. And honestly, until... We read this for this episode. I hadn't read it since I was probably 12 years old. Maybe even younger than that. Probably even younger than that as I was trying to think about it. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, who knows? Like you said, people who like to ban things, they like to ban things for all kinds of reasons. Those people are silly. So let's kind of talk about this book and our experience with it. What do you think? Let's do it. But before we do, a note from our friends. Do you like horror movies? So do we. Fucks his little eyeballs yep. out. Because his tongue it on out. She yeah. was great. Do you like American Horror Story? So do we. There are some butts. Yep. Killings. Yep. Butt. Yep. Killings. Butt. Yep. Killings. It's over 90% cheek. That's your butt. You see the essence of the butt. Are you into vampires dancing in mesh tank tops? Us too. I was mesmerized by the mesh tank top and leather pants. Are you into high-minded film critique and discussion? Because we've got that. And it is beautifully filmed. Like, it really... Just the stark contrast of colors, like you said. Not your thing? How about a dick joke? His dick, dude. He put his yeah. dick in a dick. Come on. We've also got one dude to give dude perspective. Zombie apocalypse is no time to have your head in the pussy clouds, Mickey. This is survival. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So head over to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen, and subscribe to The Bloodlust, your go-to podcast for classy broads and the token dude talking horror. Talk about this little sci-fi fantasy book known as A Wrinkle in Time. And I do see it kind of lumped into that category a lot, sci-fi slash fantasy. It's it's a little of both, right? It is. I have trouble calling it science fiction, despite it being built around a scientific idea. Sure. It really is a very fantastical story. Yeah, yeah. There's just like a little little sprinkling of science on top. Alright, so experience score. Um, for me, this is gonna settle into the page turner category um i do intend to read all the books in this series and i am really really glad that i finally started it i can't believe i feel like i said it's kind of like this secret shame that i hadn't read it and i really i really enjoyed it and i wanted to keep going i'm really glad that you read it too i think it's an important book for people to read to understand the history of the beginnings of fantasy sci-fi and Yeah, and especially before the movie comes out, right? Yes, very much. But A Wrinkle in Time. (laughs) 
It was definitely a book. Um, I think that's actually the score that I have to give it for myself. I almost called it a struggle. <gasps> but the book itself wasn't like that. It wasn't hard to read while I was reading it. But I had a lot of trouble motivating myself to pick it back up and start reading it after I had put it down at any given point. Mm-hmm. It took me a lot longer to read this very short book than it normally does. Because I really, I don't want to say I was bored. But there's a lot of things that didn't resonate with me as an adult like it did as a child. Oh, that's really interesting. And I wonder if that is from like a rereading perspective, because this was all brand new for me. And I really had no idea what this book is about beside, you know, like the the trailer for the movie that I saw. So, huh, that's very, very interesting. I don't expect most people to necessarily have that same experience with the mm-hmm. book. But for me, I just had a lot of trouble getting into it. I think for me, um, I did, you know, say it was a page turner. But for like kind of, you know, coming off of Warcrossed and some other books I'm reading in between, it was kind of, um, it was kind of a little bit weird for me, like just in in terms of other things that I'm reading right now. I didn't necessarily want to like totally grab this book every free second I had, but it wasn't like painful or anything and i really did want to know what happens so it kept me kept me coming back but yeah i don't know maybe for the time of year it was kind of a weird read for me so let's talk about writing style uh so with madeline's writing in this book i really didn't feel like she was playing down to the young audience no i don't think so either yeah, um, I could have used even more description and lush prose, of course, because we know I love those things. But the characters speak in this cadence and conversational style of that time period, which is the early 60s. And I find it really charming. I think it is so cute. I love, you guys know what I mean. And like, when you read it, you'll kind of see or if you watch movies from that time period, where it's just like, we all have this different way of speaking in different generational times. And that sort of speech in America, I find really, really adorable. Kind of reminds me of the Twilight Zone and a lot of other things from the 60s like that. And even though Mrs. Pigglewiggle was earlier, it gives me Mrs. Pigglewiggle vibes as well. It comes off to us now as very precocious. Although you think? It, I, I feel that it does. I mean, I don't think it is for the time, but if you were to see children talk like that now, <laughs> it's it's a very precocious way of talking. It's a little adult. I find it so charming. I find it absolutely precious. Um, And it looks like for the movie that they're setting that in present time, which I think seems like a really good choice. I think it's a very good choice. And it's somewhat of a colorblind casting as well, which I think is an even better choice. Yeah, it looks like um, Meg and Charles, well, their mom's played by um, a black actress and their dad's played by dude from Star Trek movies, Chris Pine, right? (laughs) Uh, He's white dude. And so I think that's cool. We've got like a biracial thing going and I love it. And she looks just like really really cute as a button i have a lot of problem with the way that the children are written especially at the beginning of the book though oh they're very they're introduced very quickly and there's just an immediate friendship that's built between them that doesn't really it's not earned well no it's not earned because it's almost faded that's the way i thought of it is that when the children characters well i know you're specifically talking about charles and meg meeting calvin um I took that as to be fated, like it was meant to be, because they were meant to be in the same place at the same time in order to carry off this really important adventure that they have to do. 
I definitely got that too, but it created a sense of unreality that I had a lot of trouble recovering from through the rest of the book. I feel like you are very cynical about this. Where is your childlike sense of wonder and whimsy, sir? I know. I wanted it so much. And I get why, as a kid, that that's important. You're a lot more trusting of people in general as a child. And so there is sort of a... You don't need to go into the whole thing of how one person distrusts someone else or how they grow together. There's just kind of an assumed thing. Well, this is a main character. Of course, the characters are all going to like each other, even if this is the first time they've ever met. But as an adult, I had a lot of trouble connecting with any of them. Of course, little Charles is adorable, but (laughs) I I had a lot of trouble connecting with their whole relationship and their dynamic because it just happened so quickly. Okay, interesting. So that's a different approach to it. You thought it happened really quickly, and I was kind of saw it as like, it's this wonderfully like faded thing that they were there when they were supposed to be to meet each other and form this fellowship uh, to, you know, go save worlds and stuff. But kind of on that note, let's talk a little bit about the characters. So let me start with Meg. I love Meg. I love Meg. And I didn't know that for a lot of girls, she is kind of a heroine figurehead in literature. So that was really cool for me to learn. And I totally got it. Because Meg is perfectly imperfect. She's actually, um, there's some really sophisticated themes kind of going on with Meg that may even have gone over a lot of little kid readers, young readers heads, I'm thinking. But you know, she's not beautiful. She's kind of homely. Um, she's unkempt. She's got glasses. She's got frizzy hair. She's impatient. She has a temper. I mean, she's not like a brat or anything, but she's just, she was just so wonderfully real. And I feel like a lot of the times, you know, little young heroines are, they're unrealistic. They're unachievable. And this is a girl that I think a lot of kids could see themselves in. And some of her impatience and her, you know, her aggressive feelings come from the fact that she's really smart, but she just seems stuck up and precocious to her teachers. She's got this, you know, incredibly life-changing thing going on with her dad being gone. This is a lot of stuff for a young heroine to deal with, man. I I loved her. There's a theme with her that I really wish that I got as a child as well, that I definitely got this time. It's that she knows a lot. She's very smart, but she learns differently than what the establishment has tried to teach her. Yes, that is it exactly. She's not a standardized test type of gal. And I think that that's very important and a very good character to have in a book and a very good message to send to children who maybe have suffering grades, have trouble in school, but are not dumb. I think that is so, so wise. And and I totally like, yeah, I just really fell in love with this little girl, this little character. I think that was a big part of me wanting to, um, you know, keep reading the book and wanting to keep on with this series is because I have an investment in Meg. Um, on kind of the same note, uh, I don't think he's going to be quite, quite this way in the book. I mean, as, in the movie as he was in the book, but little Charles Wallace. Oh my god. Frickin' adorable. He is such a precious little child. Oh my god. He is so funny. And he is like this savant, this absolute genius little boy. So he's like this savant 
this little genius, and so well-spoken, so wise, still a little boy, but he's operating on these levels of, like, just regular, highly intellectual person, and then he's also kind of a spiritual genius as well. What a cool thing, like, to write for a kid. I mean, just so intuitive, so wise. How cool. I mean, there's not a lot of characters like that for a kid. I actually disagree. I think- I think that having the incredibly smart, perfect little child who's beyond his years is actually kind of a trope. I mean, but not to the degree of Charles Wallace. Oh, and don't get me wrong, Charles Wallace is adorable. He's I love a him. Little He's snowflake. Precious. But I don't I don't think that he is as revolutionary as you might feel that he is. To his level, to his degree of being not only so so smart intellectually but also um he has this spiritual this pathos this ethos side of him i don't feel like that's a character i see a lot in a children character i think i get your point are are you referring to how emotionally wise he is well it's both it's the combination of all those things because that is true he's not just a genius savant but he is also very emotionally mature there's like a sixth sense sort of thing at play you know with all these characters and with the story in general that there's kind of this uh, mystical element this pathos that can't be explained by science and he's a pretty good embodiment of that for the book so calvin he's uh he's an interesting boy he's That's a not jo- the word i would use to describe him interesting hey we should be picking on Calvin now. Uh, he's fine. He's just okay, harmless. Let me, let me no. Let me tell you why Calvin. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Let me tell you why Calvin is interesting. Okay. So Calvin is a jock and he's popular, but he has a really sad home life. And he's kind-hearted. He's smart. He's crazy, crazy smart, just like the other two. But then also, like Charles Wallace, he has an intuitive side to him. And I like that. I mean, you have to remember, this was, I think, 1962 when this book was written. I don't think there was a lot of, I mean, you know, you can see that these became archetypes that other writers would use, where he's on the surface surface level, this jock popular kid, but under that, he's smart, and he has that same sixth sense, this spiritual pathos, you know, kind of thing going on. You're right. And maybe why I'm so harsh on- And the tough home life. Yes, he did. And and I think maybe the reason why I'm so tough on this book and and him as well is you just said it right there, is that this book created those archetypes. Yes, I think it did for a lot of writers. And I guess after 50 years, those archetypes have been built upon and they've been improved or recreated, but- Adapted for their time. So reading the original- characters that the, these archetypes are built on, I guess is going to be a little bit jarring. Did so I sway you? Maybe did that's I, why I'm not being really fair to them. Did I sway you to have just a little bit more of an open mind towards these characters? I am swayed a bit more, yes. Because, yeah, you just have to think about time period, man, and how a lot of authors that are writing great fantasy and sci-fi uh, probably grew up reading these books, and that sparked something in them. It's just hard for me to think of it as a time period piece, even though it is. It's hard for me to think of it as that. Right, right. Um, and I and I do see that. So really briefly, a note on the characters of mom and dad, specifically mom. But I thought it was really cool that in a kid's book in 1962, that these children's parents are scientists. I think that's really cool, because I don't think there was a lot of... um 
kids whose parents were scientists back then. Uh, it was, you know, kind of a new field. And especially for, well, I mean, science wasn't new, but like that that's something like someone's mom and dad could be as a job. Especially mom. Mom especially, yeah. Yeah. But I think that's really cool. And I love the way she treats the kids. She treats them with a lot of respect and as equals. And I know that's probably, you know, a, a you know, a hearkening on the fact that she's an intellectual. But, you know, it's she accepts her kids for exactly who they are. She's not trying to change them in any way. And, like, the fact that Charles Wallace is handling a knife very carefully to make sandwiches at midnight is just who he is. And she's like, that's totally cool. Yep, that's my kid. That's Charles Wallace. Um, I loved that. I, it, you know, in a weird, weird way, it reminded me of Atticus from To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, like how the kids call him Atticus. They don't call him dad. And, you know, just kind of like level of respect between parent and child. I thought was really cool. And I mean, they're not like hippy dippy or anything. I think like that seems really progressive for the time period, too. It seems that she has a really good relationship where she does have control. She does set boundaries and rules for the children, but she also sees them as peers, in particular, Meg and Charles Wallace. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, So I don't know, mom, cool, science parents. How awesome is that? So a, a note on the Mrs. The, the Mrs. Trio. What's what's it? Who and which? Yes. Um, I love the look we're going for in the trailer of the movie. I I don't know if it's exactly. It's kind of hard to picture them the way it's described in the book. But I love where we're going with this. And of course, there's three um, really good, strong actresses, uh, including Oprah. Including the Oprah. Especially the Oprah. Yeah. I don't know. I think that these three ladies are cool. They definitely fill that archetypal guide on the hero's journey cycle thing. Um, and they're wonderful, magical, uh, otherworldly. But they do sort of the same thing as the author does in general, where they don't talk down to the kids. They put a lot of trust in the kids to do the right thing and to be wise and intelligent and brave. And I think that's really empowering. I love the three of them. I'm interested to read more on people's breakdown of their meaning and their place. I really love them, but I feel like that there, there's a, there is a deeper meaning to them that I'm not getting. Yeah, I mean, they are um, creatures. They're definitely creatures. <laughs> <laughs> they're not uh, they're not your average run of the mill uh garden variety witches or wizards. Okay, so appeal. Um I almost feel like this is not a question. <laughs> uh it's a mass appeal book. It frankly it just is because it is still relevant, it is still read and it's being adapted as a major feature film uh some 56 years later and it's never been out of print from what I've read. I mean, if that doesn't spell mass appeal, I'm I'm not quite sure what does. I agree with you in a in the sense that it is a great book for all children or or children at heart. I'm not so sure about that still. Oh my god. You're turning me a little bit as far as the period peacedness of it, but I'm going to have to give it a general score myself. Wow. I mean, the fact that I read and loved this book when I was a kid, it really informs a lot of the grade that I want to give it. Um, I think it's great for kids. I think 
it's a fantastical story that's hinged on a single science fiction kind of science fact uh, explanation of theoretical science. But I, I just don't think it holds up to an adult reading. Wow, I totally disagree. I feel like you are the Grinch of A Wrinkle in Time. I'm sorry. I feel like you are the thief of joy. It's just how I feel. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I I am shocked. I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm at least an example of how wrong you are, sir. Because I'm an adult, allegedly, at least it says so on my driver's license, and I loved this, and it totally held up for me. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think that someone who is an adult who liked it is wrong for liking it. I just, for me, a mass appeal book is a Harry Potter. You can give it to 99% of the people that you know, and they'll love it, and they'll pass it on. I just don't think about this book that way. I don't think that I could give it to everyone. Wow, I could not disagree more with you. I just couldn't. You are, you're the, you're the wrinkle in time Grinch. That's what you are. That is what you are now. So I want to talk about spoilers, but we always give everybody a little bit of a warning. So if you're like me and you're one of the weird odd ducks in this world who's never read this book, you know, go read it. Go read it. And the movie comes out, I think, in March. Then come back and talk spoilers with us. Enjoying the show? Please like and subscribe on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Genre Junkies. And don't forget to visit the website, genrejunkies.com. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the spoiler section. I'm still here, Sandra, and my co-host, the Grinch, Scott. (laughs) I cannot get over this, you guys. I cannot get over like how much Scott does not have the outpouring of love that I do for this book. I am shocked. I really thought I would, and I really want to. I just found myself disappointed. <gasps> maybe it's hard to live up to how you remembered it as a child, and maybe that's what's damaging me in this case. <sighs> maybe so. I just, I'm I'm flabbergasted, you guys. Like, it's one of those things it's hard for me to even defend because I'm like, isn't it so obvious how great it is? I'm really curious to know if this is a polarizing thing or if I just stand alone in this. Well, I think everybody has books that they've read at some point in their lives that they really loved or had a lot of meaning for them. And you go back and read it again and, 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 and it just doesn't quite feel the same. I think everybody can relate to that. Like, I don't think I could go back and read all the Babysitter's Club and feel as emotionally invested as I once was. Yeah, but the Babysitter's Club isn't held up to the same standard that this book is. Shut your mouth. (laughs) You leave the BSC out of this, man. All right. (laughs) All right, let's talk about spoilers. Uh, So at its core, this to me was just a really beautiful story of good versus evil and the power of love. As cheesy, as corny as it is, that's what a lot of books are at its core, you know? And I think this was such a sweet way to deliver that. Um, Specifically, sibling love. And I'm like a total sucker for stories about sibling love, because as you guys know, I have a sister that I'm super close to. Um, So I thought that was really beautiful. Meg really grew on me, as I kind of said before. She's not that typical heroine. Um, I was very invested in her. And I kind of thought that it was cool, because in a lot of ways, you know, she's a tween. 
She's just dealing with being kind of this black sheep in a already kind of unusual family that the rest of society doesn't really understand how they operate. Um, and I think that's cool. I think that's really cool that the whole message of Meg is you're perfectly imperfect just the way you are. And uh, another cool notion that we couldn't say before the spoilers is evil as it, capital I-T, this darkness, this all-consuming darkness that makes everyone the same. They lose their individuality. Love, creativity, and uniqueness is its enemy, and it literally puppets people like it does to Charles Wallace and to the red-eyed man. That's a cool concept. I mean, it's not the most original thing ever. And of course, that is, you know, something that happens in a lot of books and movies. But um, I liked that. I liked this sort of that this evil, this darkness makes everybody the same. Well, I think that that speaks a lot to the time that this book came out. It's very yes. body snatchers. It's very, very red panic. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's very much about everyone being the same and everyone being equal, but equals not <laughs> not the right kind of equal. Right. It's not really equal and it's not fair. Uh, yeah, really cool, cool stuff, especially for a kid's book in that time. And also just the subject matter of the type of scientist her parents are, especially her dad. That was very new stuff to the common populace. Yeah, introducing theoretical physics is really what it is. Uh, the idea of higher dimensions, the idea of yes. space-time, they don't say it specifically, but that really is what they're talking about. In some books, we talk about how, you know, some of this good sci-fi kind of breaks things down into nice little yummy, um, digestible little chunks. And I mean, this is a perfect example of it because it's worded so that even like an eight-year-old child can understand. My understanding of space-time is rooted in my first reading of this book. Now, it's very simplistic in the way that it describes it. It's also proven to not be completely accurate and possibly impossible, but it's still a very good grounding understanding of what space-time looks like, what's theoretically possible in the way that it's built. So did you want to say some stuff about dad since he's kind of revealed to be alive and trapped in a weird uh, time prison? Well, he's another character that doesn't really have anything to work with. He His most important thing is Meg realizing that her parents aren't going to save her. She's got to save herself. They have to save themselves. Yeah. He's just a prisoner of the situation as much as she is. She's a self-rescuing princess, I would say. And Wrinkle doesn't dig into this topic very much, but it's also a story of the strength of children, the strength of innocence, the yes. strength of curiosity. Mm -hmm. That is something that we lose as we become adults slowly. We grasp onto it as hard as possible, especially our generation. Mm -hmm. But that's something that's very unique to children. And I really like books like this, like The Golden Compass, mm -hmm. where being a child is a strength. Absolutely. I think that's really cool. And that's very empowering to read as a kid. And kind of that concept of holding on to that spirit of discovery and of innocence and of open mindedness and open heartedness is something that we should carry into adulthood. And, you know, maybe too few people do. I love that there's this other theme in the book to me, these different worlds they visit. You know, people are still people, <laughs> specifically in the character of Ant Beast. 
who really ended up being my favorite character when all is said and done, um, and her fellow creatures. Uh, I adored them. She was tender and accepting, and her people are so unlike us. Even in appearance, there's nothing like even vaguely hominid about these people, except for that they kind of stand on two legs. That's probably, and they have a head. That's like the most, uh, that's it. I mean, they don't have features. They're hairy. They have tentacles, but they're more humane, more advanced, and more intuitive than we. And that's a beautiful message, I feel. I think it really does drive home that humans are not special. No. <laughs> we're just, we're in this world too. And kind of this notion of people of differences all needing to work together. You know, like they need to combat the darkness. We need to combat the darkness. And it doesn't matter, you know, not just on a species level, but maybe she was saying something about it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, what color your skin is. You know, the power of good is the power of good. And, you know, we all need to come together and embrace individuality instead of trying to sterilize and making everyone the same. Yeah, I mean, the point of the book is to love, is to love one another, to love oneself. Love is how you fight the darkness. Yeah, I feel a song coming on. <laughs> Do you like Ant Beast? Did you I like the creatures? I do like Ant Beast, and I forgot about Ant Beast. Yeah, there's, there's. I remembered a surprising amount about this book more than I thought I had. The book is again not very long, so no. I thought that the pieces that I remembered were just pieces of the book. I didn't realize that that was the whole book, but I completely forgot about Ant Beast and and that whole stop and just how loving they all were yeah and that message that really strong beautiful message i'm also curious to see in a movie adaptation you know if they kind of blend stuff from other books in the quintet into the movie you know how they kind of do that sometimes i'll be interested to see if that happens i'd like to say i'm going to read the rest of the series before the movie comes out i think that's a great goal for me to have but i know i'm such a mood reader i'm such a mood reader it's hard for me to have to be read piles because of that but i do want to read these books i'm going to read the whole series on the bright side, I don't think the other books are any longer than this one, so they should be fast reads. Yeah, and to see if any more of this, um, you know, quote-unquote controversial religious stuff comes up. I'm really fascinated by that, of course, because it's very interesting to me why anybody would ever want to ban a book. Let's talk about our execution score. Yeah, we changed the name. It's execution score now. Same idea, different name. <laughs> so when I hear the word Tesseract, I think of Marvel movies <laughs> and comic books. I know, they kind of did that. Yeah. Um. Funny, funny. How many Tesseracts out of 10 would one give this book? I'm going to go first, Mr. Grinch. You're mean one, Mr. Grinch, and I'm going to go first. All right. I How many am... cubed cubes? <laughs> I'm going to give this seven Tesseracts out of 10. Um. I loved it. I enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was wonderful and beautiful and cute and charming. Charming is all get out. Of course, things could be better. And I think all the stuff that makes me hold back from giving this a higher score is going to be really well fleshed out in the movie in a more um, contemporary viewpoint. Well, as I said, my initial idea of space-time was rooted in this book and I think that says a lot for how well it's presented. Mm -hmm. 
The soft touch of religion and spirituality is perfectly introduced, and it creates a really uplifting message without being very preachy, although I guess apparently some people will find (laughs) reasons to hate it. Uh, Those are the positives, but everything else, like I said, the shallow characters, the rushed storytelling, and the general lack of direction throughout, I think it really hurt it for me. Um, That said, my score is not a lot different than yours. It's six out of ten cubed cubes. (laughs) Six out of ten. Okay, you know what? I'll take it. I'll take it. All right, everybody, thank you for joining us for this very fun little episode. Thank you very much, and uh, enjoy. The, I hope you enjoyed the book, and I hope we all enjoy the movie. Me too. And please remember to keep reading past your bedtimes. <laughs> <laughs>